Well, back in um, 2004, the city of Jerusalem, as you know, one of the most famous cities in the world, bore witness to what some refer to as a happy accident when a water pipe burst in one of the most historic areas of Jerusalem, and the city workers were brought in, and as they tried to fix the water break, they realized that the water had exposed ancient steps, steps that had not seen the light of day for 2,000 years. And so whenever something like that happens in Jerusalem, they immediately bring in the greatest archaeologists in the world, many of which are there on site in Jerusalem. And so they stopped the project, they brought them in, and the archaeologists determined that they had found none other than these steps to the Pool of Siloam that many by that point thought perhaps never existed, but this happy accident exposed the steps that led down to the actual Pool of Siloam. Well, since then, they contracted to do a massive excavation and restoration project to bring the entire thing back to life. It is the size of two Olympic-sized swimming pools. And just in the last few weeks, the last eight steps have been unearthed. Covered for 2,000 years, they are now seeing the light of day and the Lord's people will be able to go visit this place that bore witness to one of the most significant miracles of Jesus' ministry. As he healed a man of his sight, a blind man healed his sight, told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, giving him eyes to see. Of course, the symbolic meaning of that goes far beyond just the physical healing. Lord, give him eyes that he might see. The beginning, the beginning of all of these significant things in Jerusalem begin today. The beginning of the future of Jerusalem, the city of the king, all starts today. Jerusalem is taken in Judges chapter 1. That's amazing to think about. We just take for granted this incredible, this beautiful city. Many of you have traveled there. Without the events of today's passage, you wouldn't be able to go there. The events of history would not have unfolded like they did. It's truly incredible. So just to give us a little context before we read the passage. Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, around 1850 B.C., that's southern Iraq. Father Abraham was originally called in about 1850 B.C. from southern Iraq. David, King David, the greatest of all the kings, he was coronated to kingship in 1000 B.C. So you have on one bookend Abraham's call, 1850 you have the crowning of David as king, 1000 B.C. Right in the middle of that is where the book of Judges falls. Joshua dies. There is no replacement. There is no successor for Moses or Joshua. It is a whole new day 
in Canaan for the people of God as of the book of Judges. And so that gives us a little context. With that in mind, please stand for the reading of God's word. As we start this new, very interesting book of God's word. Judges chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel, they inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Again, Joshua's not there to ask. Verse 2, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. That's even foreshadowing these regal aspects to the tribe of Judah. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And likewise, we'll go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai, Bezek, that just means the king of Bezek. They found Adonai, Bezek, at Bezek, and fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites, Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him, and they caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to scrap, used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Thus marks the beginning of the city of the king. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country of the Negeb and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now I will never, ever, ever forget unless there is some kind of cognitive issue, I will never forget my first interaction with a federal judge. And believe it or not, I had my first interaction with a federal judge, not in any kind of law court, but in a presbytery court. Colin Peters is wondering, how can that be? Well, I'll explain. So, there was a difficult situation in the presbytery, and I was asked to play the role of defense attorney in a particular case. And so the, there are legal aspects in our 
church polity, church organization that would allow a member, if they feel like there's a grievance that hasn't properly been redressed, they could appeal it to a higher court. Well, this individual did, and an actual trial commenced. And evidence was produced, and facts were presented, and all kinds of things like that. And so when the night of the trial actually came, um, there was a three-person commission that were acting like a, a Supreme Court, if you will, that were going to speak and rule on behalf of the Presbytery in this matter. And I knew all of the commissioners, um, and the chairman of the commission I had gotten to know, he could not have been any friendlier before the proceedings. Um, he was warm in his emails. We were laughing about things before the trial commenced. This is not an exaggeration. When the trial commenced and it was convened and the judges asked, you know, the person I was representing, you know, tell me what happened. Tell me the account of this situation. From your perspective, we want to hear from you. And so the person did and they did the best they could. They had left a few things out. So I, I'm the defense attorney, right? And so I began to speak on behalf of the person I was representing, adding some things to it. When the chairman of the commission, the federal judge, screamed at me across the table, do not speak unless you are spoken to. And I was like, it almost blew me out of the chair. And I was like, what do you, I, like, this was totally, I've been a part of Presbyterian courts before. I had never experienced something like that. And I start to question it. I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, if you do it again, you're out. <laughs> That's not the kind of judge that we're talking about in the book of Judges, thankfully. And he really shouldn't have been that kind of judge in that context. But in the course of the evening, this person yelled at everyone. So I felt better about that. He didn't just pick on me. It really was. like That's like a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Colin may or may not know who I'm talking about. The judges of the book of Judges, it's kind of a misnomer, like in our context. Like when we think of judges, in our context, what do we associate with judges? Like, yes, Alden said a gavel, okay? Um, and like a black gown or a black robe who's making judgments and pronouncements and rulings and maybe even yelling at people, okay? That's what we think of modern-day judges. In the book of Judges, the judges at this time are like a combination of functions in our context. I mean, a judge could be one of them, a general, a military general, um, a tribal chieftain, all of those things wrapped up together was what was considered a judge in the book of Judges. So they're not quite Moses and Joshua. Um, they're not kings, but they were very significant. And they played a huge role in the future of Israel at the time of the Judges. So if we go back just 20 or 25 years, that's when Joshua led the people over the Jordan River 
into the promised land and that period of redemptive history, that's when they were taking possession of the land. They went in, they attacked the Canaanites, and they took possession of the land. The book of Judges is about their attempt to take full occupation of the land. So for 20 to 25 years, Joshua is alive. He's leading them. They're taking the land. Joshua dies. This is the time of the Judges. They're trying to fully occupy the land. Okay. One of the primary purposes of our time this morning is to deal with the elephant in the room that we mentioned a few weeks ago. And the elephant in the room is the reality that's bound up in taking possession of the land and occupying the land. Taking possession of the land and occupying the land, that was the Lord's people being obedient to his command to engage in what? Holy war. So those two words today in our modern context evoke images of what? You think of maybe the Crusades or Islamic Jihad or something like that, People sometimes forget that the God of Scripture gave to his people in honor of his promise to Abraham a particular land that had specific borders that was occupied by a group of people called the Canaanites. And the Canaanites were not just going to lay down their arms and grant this land willingly. And so the people of God had to take the land of Canaan by force. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 7 that describes what would be involved in taking the land and occupying the land. And so I would just ask you as I do this, how would you explain this to your child? If you're reading through the Bible in the year, we all love the Gospels. Who doesn't love the Gospels? We love the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ. We love the mercy and the graciousness and the kindness of God and Christ Jesus. We love the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself and things like that. How would you deal with this? How would you explain this to a teen or a young adult? Deuteronomy 7 reads, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and when he drives the Canaanites out from before you, then you must destroy them totally and completely. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Now, friends, make no treaty with them and show them no mercy and drive them out completely and destroy them totally. That seems to be at variance with the ethic of the New Testament, the new covenant in Christ Jesus. What did Jesus say we're to do regarding our enemies? Pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. What's the the essence of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And last time I checked, I don't think any of us would want us to be dispossessed from our homes or where we live. Okay? 
Jesus said regarding neighbor love, when the Israelites had this kind of narrow and myopic view of who was or wasn't their neighbor, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who was the hero in the parable of the Good Samaritan? The dreaded Samaritan. What do we learn from the parable of the Good Samaritan? Who is our neighbor? Anyone who has a need. That's our neighbor. Anyone who has a need, the least of these, he or she is our neighbor, and we're to show them love and compassion. And so how do we reconcile those new covenant truths with the idea of holy war? Now, some scholars, even conservative scholars, have felt this tension and this difficulty and have sought to answer the question in a variety of ways. But before we get to that, go to panel five. The situation's gonna get even more difficult. So I just wanna put this in context. Not only did the Lord critique them for, for this and that in the book of Judges? The Lord critiqued them and disciplined them for not driving the Canaanites out thoroughly enough. It's not just that they expelled them. They didn't do it thoroughly and completely. The Israelites showed mercy in some cases, to the Canaanites, and the God of the Bible critiques them for that. Look at verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo, and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. And on the one hand, you would be thinking, well, that's good that they weren't, you know, they still have a place to live. It's not good, according to the Bible. Verse 28, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor but did not drive them out completely. Now this is condemned. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. That was not the idea that they would be subjected to forced labor. The idea is that they would be driven out or destroyed. So we don't even get to the end of Judges chapter one before you see spiritual compromise on the part of the Israelites. But if you're like me to the modern reader, you're kind of sympathizing with the Canaanites. Okay, well, Forced labor is better than dying, you know, I guess. How would you answer this? How would you explain this? Not only maybe to, you know, um, 
a child in your family, but somebody who's struggling with the claims of Jesus Christ. Somebody who wants to believe the gospel, who's listening to what you say about the love of God and Christ Jesus, and maybe that person asks you, well, what do we think about this holy war stuff? Hoping that there might be some kind of good reason in their mind. What would you say? Like I said, theologians over the years, even conservative theologians have greatly struggled with this. Some interpret it allegorically, like it's... um, early church father origin he justified it um he interpreted it through the lens of allegory it didn't really happen this was describing ongoing spiritual conflict between the people of god and the nations it's not literally true because he just couldn't imagine the alternative there's the cultural justification where people kind of try to soften it they soften it you know under the under, through the lens of well everybody was doing it and this was just a way of life in 1350 bc and that's just kind of what everybody did and so therefore in their minds that makes it more palatable there is the community misinterpretation explanation that What really happened is the Israelites misunderstood God's command to engage in holy war. And that is, I I understand the earnest attempt to try to reconcile this with what they know, with what people know about the love of God. But that is not the way to handle a difficult passage like this. Because I would imagine most of us, if not all of us, struggle with passages like this. How how could you not, to some degree, struggle with passages like this? But all of us, and even non-Christians, everybody has a sense of justice. Everybody has a sense of justice. Everybody understands that certain acts and certain deeds are abhorrent. There are certain actions that virtually everybody in our society would label as abhorrent and disgusting and justice is warranted. Like in fact, we've never had a greater cry for justice than we do right now in our culture. You know, much of it is misguided, but it is a cry for justice nonetheless. What do we call that? The, uh, the cry for what? Social justice? Many, many, you know, there are many, you know, Christians who cry for that. Many non-Christians, many atheists cry out for social justice. And what does that imply? There are some actions, some deeds, where justice is required. And payment and punishment must be levied. And sometimes people who are, who are atheists, who are not Christian, can believe in the most severe of punishments and whatnot. Everyone, everyone has a sense of justice. But due to sin and finitude, our sense of justice is not always accurately dialed in appropriately. I hate to kind of spoil the book of Job that our ladies are doing. 
But in one sense, it's all building up to the question that's posed in the book of Job, a rhetorical question. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? What is the implied answer? Yes, the judge of all the earth will do right. And we have to trust him. We have to bow the knee before him, especially when we don't understand. I can offer up reasons as to why the Lord did this. You know, like, why didn't the Lord, if you remember your Bible, why didn't the Lord allow Abraham to lead people into the promised land? Do you remember? He did it out of mercy. The Lord told Abraham that the sin of the Amorites, the sin of the Canaanite people who dwell in Canaan has not yet reached its fullness or peak. Allowing them to live 400 more years was an act of mercy and grace. If you knew the things that these Canaanite cultures practiced to their children and to others, it would blow your mind. In the text, and this does seem very graphic and barbaric in our modern context, what did the Israelites do to Adonai Bezek when they caught him in the text? Do you remember reading that? They cut off his thumbs and they cut off his big toes, which seems absolutely barbaric in our context. What was the rationale in the passage as to why they did that? Because Adonai Bezek, that's what he had done to 70 kings. He had inflicted that horrific punishment on 70 kings that he had defeated making them, you know, completely dependent on him and subject to his rule and reign. And so this was like a principle of retributive justice. The Old Testament would also describe this as like an eye for an eye. All that that means, that, that, is, not, that, is, a, that is a wonderful thing. What an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth means, it simply means the punishment fits the crime. We're not going to overpunish people we're not going to underpunish people. The punishment will fit the crime. And that's what happened to Adonai Bezek. And the Lord was telling the people to drive out the Canaanites so that they could completely possess the land. I'm just going to read to you briefly from Exodus 23 as to the rationale, and it's going to directly apply to us. We're about to make the transition to life in the new covenant. Exodus 23, God says, Do not make a covenant with the Canaanites or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. The rationale for driving out the Canaanites is if you make peace with them, if you subject them to forced labor, which may seem like a good idea to you. Robbie talked about that in terms of the confession of sin. If you try to do what you think is best. I mean, that's the mantra of Judges, right? What's, what's, the, what's the theme verse of the book of Judges? There was no king in Israel 
And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And in their own eyes, it seems ridiculous for us to work all this land when we can have the Canaanites do it for us. That's a win-win. They live and they do the work for us. And the Lord said, don't you dare do that. They will be a snare to you. You will marry within their context. And when our men marry with their women, and when their women marry with our men, our people will worship their gods, and it will lead to the dissolution of the Lord's people, and that is exactly what happened to a T. What does this mean for us? Okay, we've, we've, we've done all this to, to talk about here and now, in our day. What does this mean? How does the new covenant interpret this? How does the new covenant apply that time to this time? Paul said, our struggle is not against whom? It is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers of this age. In other words, friends, we are engaged in every bit as an intense holy war right now. Our enemies are not the Canaanites. They're not physical. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. Spurgeon wrote, I just, the guy has a gift for quotes. These proverbs. Spurgeon said, beware of no man more than yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. The concern today is not the Canaanites. The concern is those sinful desires that we talked about earlier in the service that lay within us. There is a bloody, brutal, graphic, intense war going on in your heart and mine. Paul refers to it as the law of sin. It's as real as the law of gravity that is bearing against your heart and mind all the time, tempting you, drawing you, enticing you away from worship of the Lord your God. And that's why we have to take our sanctification seriously. That's why we have to take growth in the Christian life seriously. Because if sin can get even the tiniest foothold in your heart or mind, there can be devastating consequences. So the message of Judges 1 is to understand that this kind of war, this kind of war is going on even now. And even though the battle had been won under Joshua, the battle was won. They possessed the land, okay? Now they had to occupy it. What did the new Joshua do for us? The Lord Jesus Christ. He won the battle for us. In his life, death, and resurrection, the battle is won, okay? But we are not in glory yet. And so there is a battle for your heart and mine, and Jesus gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to fight against it. And so I would charge you and urge you and admonish you, not only you, but me, to take the reality of the law of sin very seriously. Think through in your heart and mind what sins you're justifying, how you, how you placate your sinful nature, how you justify it, how you excuse it, how it's really not so bad, 
or, you know, yes, you're drawn to this, but it's really not a big deal. I've got it under control. Let me tell you something. None of us have it under control. We have the power of the Holy Spirit, but we are in a war for our hearts, and we need to pray for God's grace and God's mercy. And I'll end with this. Retributive justice is a real thing. Retributive justice is a frightening thing. Guess what the Lord Jesus bore for us? That's retributive justice at its absolute zenith. God Almighty poured out an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The punishment fit the crime. The worst of the worst, the vileness of our sin was poured out on the Lamb of God so that one day we enter a land far better than the one that is mentioned here. So we're going to learn a lot during this series through the book of Judges. It is amazing how a book, even like this, is brought alive through the person and work and the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for this book that seems foreign, sometimes even offensive, not only to our modern sensibilities, but to our, our new covenant-shaped sensibilities. Father, um, we know that we, we are the Canaanites, the, the punishment and the penalty inflicted on them is precisely what we deserve. We know that, that, that Abraham, when you called him out of southern Iraq, he was not more righteous and holy than anyone else. He was worshiping the moon god, sin. And you had mercy on him because you chose to have mercy on him. And you chose the Israelites not because they were more numerous than the other people. They were in fact the fewest of all people. But you loved them because the, you loved them. And you love us because you are merciful and kind. And you have chosen to love us and to have mercy on us. And to give us your spirit and the law of spirit the Spirit is now more powerful than law of sin. Heavenly Father, help us to avail ourselves of the means of grace. Help us to fight against sin and help us to be more thankful for, than ever for our Savior, the Lord Jesus, the new and better Joshua. In his name we pray, amen. And